Hey, look, it's the moon. Did you know uh, that the moon is thought to be about 4.51 billion years old? Did you know that? If you don't know what the moon is, it's the uh, it's the only astronomical body that orbits planet Earth. It's our only permanent natural satellite, guys. So, yeah, it's kind of a big deal, actually. If you're not familiar with it, I'd really appreciate you doing me a solid and, uh, and checking it out. Did you also know, um, moon lovers, did you also know that uh, the 17th century poet Matsuo Basho uh, said that we should think of a haiku kind of like a finger pointing at the moon but he said uh, you got to make sure that you don't put too many jewels on your finger because then people stop looking at the moon and they start looking at the finger instead see it's meant to be a poetry lesson about keeping your writing simple and honest and uh it's nice isn't it i really like that quote i mean basho probably never actually said this though it is still attributed to him all the time. There's not a huge amount of monks with bejeweled fingers wandering around back in Basho's day, Edo period Japan. Wouldn't have really been a relatable analogy. Uh, The real origin of the quote is probably uh, the American haiku writer James W. Hackett from his 1964 book of haikus. But it doesn't really matter, really, does it? It doesn't matter whose finger it is, Basho's or Hackett's, because... We're not meant to be looking at the finger, are we? We're supposed to be looking at the moon. We have to look past language, past the person who says it, and try to imagine the thing beyond. Right? I teach poetry classes from time to time, uh, with all different ages, from about five years old on up. Uh, I teach in schools and prisons, hospitals. First exercise I do in pretty much every single class I teach, no matter who they are or uh, or how they are, uh, I ask them to describe the moon. Everyone can learn something from this exercise, I think. Write a list of metaphors, I say. The moon is an adjective noun. The moon is a dark record. The moon is a blue church. The moon is a haunted inflatable. Now, of course, the moon is kind of a poetic cliche. It's a pretty hackneyed, romantic subject. But in many ways, that makes it the perfect place to start, particularly for an unsure writer, um, someone anxious about the rules and systems of poetry. It's easy to be tricked into believing that a poem arrives in the writer's mind all at once, fully formed, rather than through, you know, fucking around, which is the truth. And is there a better place to fuck around than the moon? The moon is a sad bassist. You see, uh, the moon has a, a kind of powerful gravitational field. Obviously not in real life, of course, but, but in poetry it does. In poetry, the moon draws in concepts. It draws in language. Words just seem to stick to the moon. I maintain that a poet can pretty much compare the moon to anything and the reader will read back that line and think to themselves oh yeah kind of see what they're getting at the moon is a time-lapsed mouth the moon is an aztec supermarket it's almost as if through centuries of art 
and attention and manipulation we've exaggerated the moon so much that we've we've broken it in our brains and now it's just this this open figurative channel the moon is a it's a kind of open goal there's another one When doing this exercise with students, there's one other condition that I insist upon. I ask my students to select their adjectives and nouns, not from their imagination, but from the world around them. They have to open a dictionary on a random page, or another type of book on a random page, or choose a word from a recent text message, or a word overheard on the radio, or the playground. Not from the same source either. I want them to be putting together two words from two different sources. One source for the adjective, one for the noun. Uh, I'm trying to encourage them to to act first, think later, to... uh, to work intuitively and to use their environment as an extension of their imagination. I also want them to smash together words that don't really belong together uh, to create sparks and confusion, to create a brand new, never-before-uttered description of the moon. Like No matter if, on first glance, it just feels like gibberish. Despite the excessive commentary uh, that already covers the moon, it is still possible to say something new about it. The moon is a Roman floppy disk. The moon is a feline sitcom. The moon is a Hebrew kingpin. So I've done workshops like this about once a week for about like 17 years. So I can go all day if you want. I've got reams of this stuff in folders next door. The moon is a ubiquitous chairman. Sometimes in class we take it further. Uh, I might ask the class, uh, oh, so this description of a moon here, if this was the first line in the story, what kind of story would it go on to be? Or uh, if I was to say to you, on the day that I was born, the moon was a dead travel agent, then what kind of a person would I be? What kind of horrific person would I be? But, but, But I insist, like, we don't start thinking about any of that until after the line is written. First we write it, then we work out what it means. First, the accident, then the autopsy. No matter what goes onto the page, it always seems to make sense in the end. It always seems to make sense. At least, to my ears, it does. That's how powerful the moon is. Everywhere you point, there's the moon. Now, language is elastic, I know that. We can stretch any metaphor pretty far before it breaks. But I think the moon is particularly suited to these kinds of manipulations. Every pool of water reflects it, after all, but it's always the same moon. I don't think Basho would like this very much, however. He was trying to encourage us to speak plainly and honestly. But you got to remember, like, Basho is writing... Uh, at the start of poetry, well, at least relatively at the start of poetry. The moon is is so new back then in Edo period Japan. The moon still got that, that fresh car smell. Back then, the moon is still pure. It's 100% proof. Perhaps the idea of speaking honestly and plainly about the moon still felt possible then. At least... It felt like something to aspire to. But that was back before 
before millions of people lifted their ridiculous bejeweled fingers up to the sky and claimed the moon as their own. Somewhere in that endless attack, I think we broke the moon. We pointed at it so much that it, it kind of became everything. And I find that interesting and useful for poetry, sure. But, I mean, it also makes me feel nervous, too. Because, I mean, I don't know if I want this phenomenon to spread further. I don't want to believe that if we talk long enough about anything, we end up breaking it somehow. Basho lost the moon, but I don't want him to give up on everything else. It's unsettling to imagine a world where we can no longer speak plainly on anything. Where all of us are, are weighed down with borrowed jewels, all of language now glittering like an incomprehensible rap video. In a world like that, it's no longer the moon that's broken. It's the finger. This would be a world where anything could be considered a metaphor for anything else. And any semblance of meaning would only arrive later as an afterthought. I guess I'm saying... I like the moon, but yeah, I wouldn't want to live there. The moon is an obvious nickname. The moon is a photocopied lake. The moon. The moon. The moon. The moon. The moon. The moon. Monroe's were surrounded on all sides by forest. Perhaps this is why the obsession began, birthed from a kind of claustrophobia, a feeling that the school occupied a borrowed space, a clearing that should never have been. Apparently, when the school first opened, the trees began right at the gates dense pines that barcoded the sunlight at home time. At least, that was how I imagined it. By the time I came to Monroe's, the school had expanded the clearing a mile in every direction. The road approach felt desolate now, just blackened tree stumps and debris. The school sat squat at the centre of it all. The teachers said that the forest had been cleared for an expansion. Some said new sports centre, others said new science block, but we all knew nothing would ever be built there. It was simply a way to hold back the forest, to expose any creature that emerged from it. The forest was still visible though. That jagged green horizon, 
you could never erase it completely. We'd often catch teachers mid-class at the window, their minds lost inside it. My friends who went to other schools were jealous of us Monroe boys as we had an extra day off once a month. On this day, we were supposed to stay in our homes under a kind of voluntary house arrest. Teachers called the holiday Radiator Day because our parents were supposed to chain us to our bedroom radiators. Only one or two parents actually complied. Nevertheless, the rest of us had to keep a low profile. The school had eyes in the community. Because the lunar cycle doesn't tally exactly with the calendar, Radiator Day tended to oscillate. Sometimes it was the 14th, sometimes it was the 15th. You had to be absolutely certain every month. Because any pupil that approached the school on Radiator Day would be shot on sight. The school had built a special tower for the caretaker to sit with his rifle. Just after I started at Monroe's, I remember there was a big school meeting with all the parents there too. The school had decided to ban all white circular objects from the school. From then on, the plates in the cafeteria were pink and square, like the plastic lids of Tupperware boxes. The school had always been vegetarian, but from then on, other foods began to disappear from the menu. Spaghetti hoops, pineapple rings, bread rolls. There were no more ball sports in PE. Running was still allowed, but the circular track was replaced by a straight line. Swimming continued until the following year when a parent wrote in to say that all bodies of water are tidal, even if the tide is imperceptible in small waters. Even baths were in conversation with the moon. Luckily, the school still let us take showers. In my third year, morning register was moved outside. We would line up on the school field in alphabetical order. After calling our name, teacher would throw a stick. It wasn't simply to see if anyone in the class would actually run and collect the stick. It was to examine any reaction to the stick whatsoever. It was very important that we didn't look at the stick, that we didn't acknowledge the existence of the stick at all. We had to look nonchalant whilst staying absolutely rooted to the spot. Looking casual was hard under such intense scrutiny, and several boys from my class ended up removed for further examination. Regulation hair was no longer than one centimetre. Our fingernails had to be cut half a centimetre below the tip of the finger. Also, no pupil at Monroe's had incisors. Part of our induction day involved a visit to the on-site dentist. Pupils who got red flagged could lose even more teeth. Kevin Edelstone in the year above us ended up having all his teeth pulled after a prank. There were a couple of rumours around Kevin Edelstone's prank, but the school rarely succumbed to gossip. The school had prohibited friendship groups larger than three pupils as a way to combat pack mentality, as they called it. 
friends were assigned to us at random by the faculty. I got Gareth Shubb, who wore square spectacles and performed one-man Blackadder episodes for us beneath the caretaker's sniper tower. My other assigned friend was Carl Gibbons, whose mother had shaved every hair off his body so he looked like some kind of grey stress toy. In my fourth year, wheels were added to the blacklist. Both cars and bikes were prohibited from approaching the school. Once inside the clearing, Carl Gareth and I had to lock our bikes and complete the final mile on foot. Possibly of all the changes, this was the addition that aggrieved us the most. Teenage boys hate unnecessary walking. We hated the walking even more than the detention cages they built behind the sports hall or the blackout windows they installed to block out the sun. Essentially, it's just a hot version of the moon, said Mr Kenwood. It could trigger any one of you. Then where would you be? Over time, we could feel the school transforming, extending itself, filling with shadows. The voices of teachers began to tremble, their eyes red from lack of sleep. Every week, they found new ways to be terrified of us. The imagination was breathtaking. On radiator days, Gareth and I began to cycle into the forest, rucksacks heavy with cider. Sometimes, we'd approach the edge of the clearing and howl into Gareth's dad's megaphone just to fuck with the caretaker. He'd let off a couple of blind shots, nothing more. Carl would have been there too if not stuck at home, handcuffed to the plumbing. You would have loved it more than any of us. By our final year, Gareth and I had actually formed our own choir. Radiator Ensemble, we called ourselves. There were 12 of us at our strongest. We'd drink ourselves out of our minds, stripped to our waist, roll in mud. We'd skitter around on all fours, yapping at squirrels. Then howl at the school from the edge of the forest. We sounded like a warped doo-wop record. Most of Radiator Ensemble never made it to graduation. Teachers found dirt under their nails or scratches on their face. Gareth ended up muzzled. I graduated in a class of four. I got my certificate though, which is the really important part. I moved abroad soon after. As I understand it, Monroe's isn't there anymore. They blew it up. And then, uh, they turned it into a lake. Sometimes, though, I look up and, uh, for a second, I'm right back there. Age nine. Lined up for register on that dark October morning when Kevin Edelston came bursting through the school fence on a quad bike. This huge, battery-powered spotlight 
glowing on his lap, almost as big as him. Kevin Edelston, blasting that huge, perfect circle of light across us. The kind of light that hits you in a play just before the closing monologue. The snarl of the quad bike as the circle grew bigger and bigger. Kevin laughing and howling and laughing. And then all of us running with him, chasing him as he circled the school field. Round and around we went wherever that light beam pointed. We would have followed. Whoa, 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 whoa. Frosty boys bosh shots of scotch on London's soft common. Rock off to soppy monotoss. Lost songs of London, town of bop. No motor, no lolly. No job to mock From tons of pot Down to John's bong only Too strong for Tony Only Tony don't know so Gordon's cold brown cosh Of old hot dog Now looks so good Tony scoffs lot Sods off to look for polos Johnny Shows Gordon how to body pop Slow Robocop Foxtrot To Bobby Brown Snoop Dogg Woomph By clock Now Two o'clock Tony growls Bon Mo torch songs From London's soft throng of woods Lost mock for God's two moons. Poor Tony looks down, drops Pollock on both boots. On plots so holy, old dogs poo boldly. Goons do loops of blocks. Too cold for words. Gordy pops bonbons. John spots Bono. Both gobs go. Oh. Finishing off today with uh, a style of poem known as uh, a univocalism. That's a poem that only contains one vowel. In this case, uh, obviously, uh, the vowel was O. Uh, thanks for listening to this episode. Um, I'm doing some more live editions of the podcast. 
over the summer. Uh, I'm at Latitude Festival and Green Man and Port Elliot and Edinburgh Book Festival, plus doing shows in Bristol, Manchester and Norwich. Uh, you can check the dates and details uh, on my website. That's www.imaginaryadvice.com. Uh, the dates are also on the Facebook group, Imaginary Advice Podcast. Um, you can also find me uh, on email at rossgordonsutherland at gmail.com or on Twitter at Ross G Sutherland um, I make this podcast all on my own uh, I write and record it and edit it it takes a huge amount of time and resources if you'd like to help lighten the load uh, you can support me through Patreon that's Patreon P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Ross G Sutherland um, if you already support me through Patreon thank you so much uh, you make this possible you are the the the, uh, the hilarious cat video that leaves me crying tears of joy in the grim bus station of my life. So thanks for that. Um, I'll be back soon. You have been listening to Imaginary Advice.